Good morning, Steph. First, I want to say thanks. Uh, I've been watching and listening to you now for, I don't know, four or five months, and uh, I'd stop short of calling it an obsession, but um, I appreciate <laughs> the brain I, I appreciate the brain food. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for your obsession. I mean, stalking. I mean, <laughs> not not quite. Like I said, I had to stop short. Look, what's been fair? What, what's been really, really driving at me the last couple of months was the peaceful parenting thing. And I, I was telling James that what I was hoping to speak to you about was the repair of a relationship between a father and an adult daughter. So we're well, well beyond the uh, the ability to implement peaceful parenting techniques in this uh, this particular instance. Why? Why are you, being <clears throat> are you still a parent? Well, um, well, no. This this has nothing to do with me. Actually, it's about two people who I love very dearly. My, uh, well, sorry, but let me just sort of be annoyingly technical as usual, um, which is to say that if you're if you are a parent and you're you're a parent till you die, right? I mean, it doesn't end. I mean, there are certain legal rights that end and certain things that end, but being a parent, uh, it doesn't it doesn't end, right? So I just sort of want to point that out, and it's never too late for peaceful parenting because if you're a parent and you want to improve your relationship with your children, whether they're adults or not. There's things, you know, as I've talked about before, and I'm happy to talk about again, there are things that people can do, right? It's never too late to bring peace and positivity. Now, it may be too late if you've completely ruined the relationship, the person doesn't want to have anything to do with you, but it's always worth a strong and strenuous try, I think. You're, you're right. I, I am a parent, too. I'm calling in particular today about my, my father and my sister. Uh, right. My sister's my sister's 32, and um, my, my dad's 54, going through his... Fourth, fourth divorce, I guess. So, um, anyways, when when we were children, um, my my father wasn't uh, really capable at the time. He was young, stupid, addicted to drugs, and you know, typical story, right? Mm -hmm. And so we didn't quite get a lot of attention from from him. I'm a few years older than my sister, and so I have different memories of my dad. And and we did get to do some things, and ultimately. Uh, when I became an adult, I made the choice to forgive him. Uh, I didn't tell him about it. I didn't talk to him about it and whatnot. But, and we, we have a relationship now that's more like, like friends. Um, but I, it, was, it was my choice, and even now the, the relationship is, is uh, essentially because I drive it. And that's just something that I'm willing to do. Right. My, my sister uh, is not, and she became a parent herself two years ago to a man who was like, oh, whoops, you're pregnant? Yeah, see you later. Oh. And so what it's done is uh, yeah. really brought back and resurfaced a lot of painful you know, memories or lack thereof from her childhood with, with her own dad. And I'm, I, I, I keep struggling with how to help my sister make peace with it. And I, I just wanted to to see what you might have to say as far as advice. Um, obviously, I love my sister. I love my father, too, very much, despite you know his sins and ills when we were little. But uh, I'm primarily concerned about my sister because now she has a child that she has to raise up in the world that may present a same or a similar future for her if we're not careful. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 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 All right. Well, um, what do you love about your father? Um... My, my my dad is uh, a, a great tragedy, <laughs> and and I I, I, st I stress the great part. Um, he's a ridiculously intelligent man um, who's emotionally stunted, no doubt. 
Uh, he did suffer a lot of physical and mental abuse growing up. Um, but he's, he's very talented. He's very passionate. Ultimately, in his heart, he's very caring. He doesn't know how to show it very well. Um, and, and he does enjoy talking, uh, being a part of things, learning and sharing. Um, I, and I'm fortunate because I feel like I get a lot of those characteristics or attributes from him. Um, well, sorry to interrupt. I mean, those are those are nice things to hear about someone. But my particular approach to love is that it's our involuntary response to virtue. Now, if you know, so I'm going to go with that theory. You may disagree with it, but that's sort of where I'm coming from. And so what I meant was more specifically, uh, what are the virtues that you admire or respect in your father? You know, Steph, I'm sad to say I, I don't really think I know him well enough to tell you a good answer for that question. Well, you said that you, you love him. I'm, so I'm not I'm not trying to corner you or anything like that. I'm just, I mean, there must be something that you love about him. Talent, you know, I mean, Marlon Brando was talented. That doesn't mean that we have to love him. Freddie Mercury was talented. That doesn't mean that he was a good person. Uh, so talent, I don't think, is enough. It, it may drive admiration, but I don't think it can drive love. Uh, because, of course, there are so many talented people in the world. And, of course, a lot of talented people in the world are complete shits in their in their personal life. You know, Ernest Hemingway, Bertolt Brecht, um, Percy Bysshe Shelley. I mean, lots of lots of people. And Marlon Brando, for instance. And so I don't think that talent is enough to drive love, uh, although it may drive uh, admiration. Uh, so I think it's important. And, and I'm saying this, so, you know, my if you want my advice about how to sell your dad – to your sister, then um, then I would say the first thing you need to do is to delineate the value that she's going to get out of the relationship with your father, or with your mutual father, right? And so I think it would be clear to say, you know, you will benefit from an association with dad because of X, Y, and Z. And X, Y, and Z for me need to be kind of virtues, right? So uh, if she's just had a, a child, yay, sad for the circumstances, but uh, parenting is great, then I'm sure you understand the last thing that she wants is to have uh, difficulties piled upon difficulties, right? So if your dad has sort of learned something from his experiences in his life and he's um, uh, turned the corner and you know, now wants to be there for uh, his kids, I think that's fantastic then you can say, okay, well, you know, dad is really committed to this and he's going to be up, help, able to help you out with parenting in this way and he'd be a, quote, babysitter. That's a, that's a sort of diminishing kind of term to use for a grandparent, but if you'll forgive me, for, I don't know what, he'll be a good um, parent backup, parent substitute, uh, and he'll make your life easier in this, that, and the other way. He'll be a great resource for you. But if he's sort of high maintenance and so on, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for your sister, but as a parent myself, uh, a stay-at-home parent myself, I can tell you that you don't have a lot of extra resources when you have a kid, particularly a newborn. So she's going to need people in her life who are going to really help her, you know, stay over, uh, give her breaks, you know, be a, 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 you know, come over at three o'clock in the morning when she she has a colicky baby. She's going to need people who are going to really give her resources. If your dad is in that place, then you can make that case for her. Uh, if your dad is not in that place, then it may be worth, you know, thinking about the need for for this at this time. 
I, I, I see that, and and I am. I'm going to have to struggle with uh, with the the first proposition you made about about selling him to my sister because he's uh, he's a little late in the game to be developing what I what I consider redeeming qualities. But I'm sure with the difference in situation and remember the memory that she has, she probably does not. Um, more importantly, what I'm concerned about with with my niece is if if you had to guess. What what things I might look for as a as a concerned uncle, uh, patterns of behavior per se with my sister and the uh, upbringing of my niece, to help. I, I, ideally, of course, we want to steer her away from those same patterns of behavior to get locked into the things right. that happened with my own sister. So if if and if you just had an insight as to what I might look for in my sister's behavior to. You in when somebody might need to say, "Hey, whoa, 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 we need to guide back this way." And I'll, right. I'll, that'll be the last part of my call. Thank you so much again. You're very welcome, and um, I really appreciate your concern for your sister and your niece. I think that's just wonderful, and she's very lucky to have you as a brother. So, as far as look, unfortunately, your niece is facing a stacked deck. You know, it's it's a sad but tragic truth that being the the child of a single parent uh, is is really not good. Uh, it's not good. Some people have argued, it seems to be fairly true, that if there's one thing that you could choose uh, before you were born, it would be to have two parents. Uh, and that having one parent is about the biggest strike against you. Now, that doesn't mean that you're doomed to a life of disaster. I mean, I was raised by a single mom, so to speak, and I think I turned out relatively okay. But, um, but you know, there are particular strikes against you. So I think it's really important to, to be concerned and to remember that. The first thing that I would do is uh, bring facts, right? Uh, we, we need facts. A, a lot of parenting is habitual, right? It's, it's either how you were raised or a reaction to how you were raised or what the Bible says or what culture says or whatever. It's not based on facts. And so the first thing I would do is, you know, you can have her watch the video that I've got or other people have, there's a, the truth about spanking and so on. And just say, look, it's, you know, this is the speech that I would give to her, and you can do whatever you want, but this is what I would say. I would say, look, sis, I want you to have the very best parenting experience that you can have because you've got an uphill climb. I mean, you're a single parent. That's hard. That's hard. And, but, but I, I mean, obviously, I want to be there for you. I want to be there to help you. I want to be there to, to invest in the kid and do the best that I can with the resources that I have, give you time off, give you support, give you backup. But I really, what I'm most committed to is that you have the very best parenting experience that you can. And the, the scientific facts, as best as they can be ascertained in this uncertain area, appear to be very, very clear, unequivocal, which is that you have to make a commitment to not hit your children, to not spank your children, to not raise your hand against your children, to not raise your voice against your children, to not parent your children with aggression. Because if you do, and given our history, like, I mean, I can understand why you would the ones gravitate that we were using were cut. I'm sorry? I'm sorry, if you're not talking at the moment, if you could mute, please. So... I really want you to have a great experience as a parent. If you use aggression in the raising of your children, here's what's going to happen. You are going to reduce their IQ points some considerable amount, which is going to make them harder to reason with. You also teach them reasoning skills. You're not going to teach them self-assertion skills. You're not going to teach them negotiation skills. And if you as a parent do not have negotiation skills with your children, and if your children do not have negotiation skills with you, 
how are you going to resolve disputes? Well, you're going to use your size, you're going to use your strength, you're going to use your power, uh, you're going to use your authority, and you're going to use your legal standing, which really only teaches children that might make right. That people in authority, people who are bigger, people who are and that may get you some short-term results, but this, the science is very clear. The research is very clear that you are sowing the seeds of a continual escalation of aggression that will exhaust you and truly harm your children. They may submit to your size and your power, but they will harbor resentment and they will find ways around your authority if it is unjustly imposed upon them. And you will forever be in a cat and mouse cage game with your children. They will not be honest with you. They will not respect you. They will not come to you with their problems. They may fear you. They, may, they will resent you. They may loathe you. But that is going to be the result of forcing your children to obey you based upon size, strength, power, and authority. And furthermore, what I'm really concerned about is after you've spent 12, 11 or 12 years raising your children with this constant exhausting cage match going on, that they're going to get into their teenage years, and lo and behold, they're going to get bigger and stronger and faster than you. And remember, might makes right, and they're strong. Younger, healthier, leaner, meaner. And I really, really want to protect your enjoyment of their teenage years. But that means that you have to reject of aggression in the raising of your children. That is the only way that you can build the best possible scenario and have the most enjoyable possible experience as a parent. And I know this guy on the internet... <laughs> An expert in almost nothing, <laughs> actually an expert in nothing is almost the definition of philosopher. You know what is not true, you know what is not right, you know what does not exist. But, you know, he's doing it and uh, his kid's growing up great. His kid always asks her parents if she can do stuff, if it's okay, if it's all right. Because they consult with her, so she consults with them. Everything you do is a mirror that your children will do to you. If you are aggressive towards them, they will become aggressive towards you. If you hit them, they will become very aggressive towards you and towards other children. If you reason with them, they will reason with you. If you consult with them, they will consult with you. If you show respect to them, they will show respect to you. Here are the facts. Here are the statistics. This is my greatest gift to you to have the most enjoyable, fun, magical, enlightening, delightful, beautiful, wonderful, happy time as a parent. It is your best and greatest chance to truly relish and enjoy parenthood as the most amazing, powerful, awesome responsibility of joy that there is in the world. And it's different from what we learned. It's different from what we grew up with. But it has to be this way. It has to be this way. Otherwise, your parenting will feel cursed. And you will be in a battle forever that may take years off your life, that will exhaust and debilitate you, and will have you shaking your head, wondering why you ever became a parent at all, which will not happen if you parent peacefully. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to help my, my sister guide my niece down a path to better life choices, and I, I believe that it absolutely, absolutely starts with... Uh, Peaceful parenting, and and so I do, I do nothing about that till about four or five months ago, and so I just I really appreciate you for putting it out there, and uh, thank you again for taking my call. I enjoy the show. 
You're very welcome. You know, also you can, um, you know, get some audio books, um, Parental Effectiveness Training. I've got, of course, the podcast on the podcast page at freedomainradio.com. You can burn them on CDs. If she drives a car, she can pop them in. There's lots of different things that she can do, but um, the sooner the better. You know, um, if she hits her kid once, it's starting down a road. And, of course, um, the majority of kids do get hit before being one-year-old. So thank you so much for your concern and care. Uh, this is the great to the world, and I really applaud you for doing it. Thanks, Dan. Take care. All right. Take care, man. All right. Next, uh, we'll have Hunter. All right. Thank you for your patience, my friend. I'm all ears. Well, I have some ears. I have two. Hey there, Steph. Can you hear me all right? You sh- I sure can. Very good. So how do you uh, how do you prefer your name pronounced? Uh, Stefan. Stefan. Okay. So, good. Stefan, first of all, I'd like you to... Uh, well, I have a... I have a few questions for you, if you don't mind. All right. I, we may not get I, to all of them because I think we have people in the queue, but so sure. bring up your most important first. Definitely. And uh, I'd like you to, uh, to consider these questions to be somewhat of an intellectual pr- uh, playground, if you will, for uh, radical self-expression. Feel free to answer them, or you can further clarify the intentional specificity of each question. And... You know, uh, I was kind of. Oh, but I just want to mention intentional specificity, the worst yes. name for a Chinese punk band that I've ever heard. But anyway, please go on. <laughs> okay, so uh, I wanted your general opinion on uh, just what do you think of Shakespeare? <laughs> what do I think of Shakespeare? That's a great question. It's a great question. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I have some knowledge of Shakespeare. I haven't read all of his plays. I was the lead in Macbeth uh, um, in okay. um, in college and uh, did a bunch of Shakespeare, of course, uh, in theater school. And, and so, I mean, Shakespeare is a natural-born genius of language and mm-hmm. uh, is, is truly a testament to the astounding power of the human soul. And the human mind. Uh, so from that standpoint, uh, it's you know his his plays are, are funny, they're tragic, they're moving, they're powerful, and he really lies at the center of what Harold Bloom calls the Western canon. And it's really hard to understand much about Anglo-Saxon or Western culture without understanding the degree to which Shakespeare is at the center of it. So you almost can't lose by listening to Shakespeare, by by reading Shakespeare, and so on. And he's he. I mean, he does the full range. I mean, he he goes from intense comedy to intense tragedy, pathos. Uh, he's one of the few playwrights who can regularly make me burst into tears. <laughs> and uh, so, a, a very very powerful writer, limited by his time. Naturally, um, he doesn't have really much about parenting. Uh, he has very few children in his plays. Uh, the only person who has fewer, I think, is uh, is Ayn Rand. Really had to wait till Charles Dickens to have childhood explicated in any significant way in English literature. And so that was a huge step forward. He is, or sorry, Shakespeare was a state-sucking, soulless toady as far as that went, right? I mean, <laughs> it's something that I had trouble with when playing Macbeth was, you know, Macbeth, Macbeth comes off the battlefield at the beginning of the play having cut guys in half from the top of their head to the bottom of their balls with his sword, you know, moan them down like a combine harvester, and that's all great. Yeah, no problem with that. 
but you know stick a shiv into the ribs of some old guy and then he can't sleep and all of the curses of hell hades and the three witches are upon him and so that is you know what he was doing really what shakespeare was doing and he was of course concerned about censorship under the monarchy at the time and uh so he had to, and of course the play was written, I think it was James who was the king, I can't remember which number at the time, who had a significant interest in the occult and so on, so Macbeth was partly written for him. But Macbeth, of course, is a, a massive piece of tax farm propaganda, which is if you kill people that the ruler points at, you're a hero and all good things in the world will happen to you. However, if you stick a shiv in the side of a ruler, then you are cursed beyond words and will go to hell, and that hell will start tomorrow when you're unable to sleep. So, you know, again, the beauty and power, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It's an incredible, incredible speech of, of nihilism. And it only comes because he killed the king. <laughs> you know, he can, he can go neck deep in blood on the battlefield, and he's, you know, he's happy and sleeps like a baby, but he gets some old sclerotic blood on his hands, uh, and then it's, uh, it's just doom and curse for him. And you can see this happening... Uh, quite a bit. Uh, and I've talked about this some times before. Hamlet, of course, is a truly astounding uh, play on just about every level. Okay. And it, one of the things, yeah. of course, that occurs with Hamlet is the same kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Hamlet can kill Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or, or order their death, and there's no problem. Spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> and there's no problem with any of that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, killing the king who killed his father, well, you know, that's a huge problem. <laughs> It's no good that you know so it really is you know keep the keep the blades pointed at the throats of the poor people and the foreigners and the soldiers and the innocents and no problem but pointed towards the rulers and all hell breaks loose literally thank you so much steph i i have a burning question right now uh you oh you know, sorry been... that's usually better for a doctor show um oh, oh if sorry like i'll, I'll... Show sorry go ahead <laughs> i'll show up in another three weeks no, I, I, okay <laughs> so i'm i'm joking so uh anyway uh you after after listening to uh, to you for about four months now, uh, very intensively. I mean, I I spend my free time pouring over podcasts, and uh, I, I thank you so much for what you do. And I uh, I you've kind of like uh, helped to to bring up this burning desire uh, that that has been somewhat dormant, and that's uh, to to do something when it comes to uh, I don't know if you want to say the word politics. I, I probably not because politics just sounds like bullshit to me. So uh, I, I mean, the, the word itself. So I, uh, you well, know, poly, I, right? So just think of the word. Poly is many, and ticks is a blood sucking parasite. You know, and I, so politics is the management of many blood sucking parasites that you can barely see, but which drain your essence. But sorry, etymology is a you know a fun fantasy game of mine. So. Um, you know, that is kind of interesting because I just wrote a a, a poem by called Polytics, and <laughs> uh, it's. It, you know, could I read you the the first very short uh, few? You sure like, can. Twelve lines. Okay, so it's it's right in front of me. So all right, but only if they're in iambic pentameter. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> I don't think they are. Uh, but is it all right if I continue a little bit? Go for it. Okay, so uh, holding happiness for ransom, riding a bike that's a tandem. The bike's name is America. The person steering is Erica. 
Erica has a low voice and a mask. Fighting for the handlebars is the task. What separates me from the peeps in the back is I've got binoculars, so I look ahead and laugh. I see where we're headed to the edge of sanity, getting that unleaded to fuel our reality. And except, uh, except for riding back with laugh, that's that's damn fine. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I you know I, I, I I'm trying you know to uh, to express myself, I guess. And you know, thanks for listening to that. I uh, you know I I. Back to that uh, that desire that I have, I, I I really respect what you do, and I would like to do something uh, that kind of uh, helps people out, also, you know. And I want to affect as many people as I possibly can in a positive manner. And I was just curious uh, from your standpoint, like what I could do uh, to just get out and do something and make a difference. And well, you have and, friends, right? Uh, yeah, so start with them, I'm guessing. You have friends, you have family. So what you can yeah. do is ask them about their childhoods. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? So how, how would that how would that go or like what would that do? Could you get, could you illuminate well, it? Well, you me could say, bit? listen, I've been I've been really interested in in you know, we got lots of problems in society and I've been really interested in you know, the arguments that some people have. I wouldn't reference anyone in particular, but uh, you know, arguments that some people have that say a lot of problems in society are caused by the mistreatment of children. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that I can really know you if I don't know where you came from. So, you know, if you will indulge me, you know, <laughs> I'd really like to get to know you better. And one of the ways to do that is, you know, what was your childhood like? What did you like? What did you not like? How were you disciplined? How do you think that affected you as an adult? Did you like school? What did you like about school? Did you not like school? Did you want to get out? Was it like a lead coffin sinking in mud that you had to claw your way out of? Or was it someplace you liked? Why do you think you liked it or didn't like it? Um, how do you think your childhood affects how you relate as an adult? Did your parents stay together? Was the divorce hard? Uh, if they didn't, uh, you know, if they stayed together, were they happy? How did they resolve disputes? Did you really understand how they resolved disputes? Did they always do it out of earshot? You know, this is all just shit off the top of my head. But if you want to really get to know someone, a huge portion of who we are comes from where we came from. Mm-hmm. And it's like saying, you know, I have I have a friend who's Greek and I have a friend who's Macedonian. <laughs> And to imagine that their culture, their background had no effect on them is like to say that a Jew and an atheist and a Catholic are exactly the same. Well, no, because Mm -hmm. their culture, their history, their upbringing, even if they've rejected some of those things, it's still shaped to a large degree who they are. So Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, again, if I were somebody asked me, um, somebody asked me what questions I would ask the American candidates if I were the moderator, I would say, (laughs) I would say, hey, uh, it's interesting. Tell me about your childhood. Tell me about how disputes were resolved. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you think might have given you the idea that you can solve hundreds of millions of people's problems. Uh, (laughs) Because that's a pretty grandiose thing, right? I mean, what makes you think you can have a moon base, (laughs) Mr. Gingrich? I mean, I understand you may want to go (laughs) to a place where your gut is not pulling you towards the center of the planet in such a outspoken way <laughs> i can sort of understand why you might want to feel lighter and visit a moon base but tell me i mean tell me what makes you think that that uh, i mean what an amazing thing to believe that you can run the free world <laughs> from you know a domed house i mean that's tell me well how did this come about how did you resolve disputes newt gingrich what effect did your parents marriage have on your choice of marriage partners do you think now if they don't have any clue then i would say well you don't really have any self-knowledge. And if you don't really have any self-knowledge, 
uh, you don't really have any insight about who you are, where you came from, how you became who you are now, I don't really think you have the wisdom to run other people's lives. I mean, it's almost a self-defining thing, right? I mean, if somebody has self-knowledge, they lose desire for power over others. And if somebody doesn't have self-knowledge, they should damn well never be given power over others <laughs> because they'll yeah. just be acting out all this strange shit, right? So anyway, sorry, that was a long answer, but I hope that helps. Oh, that, thank you so much. Uh, we need to get you in front of Obama so you can ask him some pressing questions. So there could be a, <laughs> a dim explosion and the, the fabric of space and time can start to reverse themselves. <laughs> Sure about that. Although exactly. I maybe would do a karaoke do duet with an Al Green song with him. That's the only thing I could think of as having anything in common. But um, now, it, it might be worse than all the uh, the CERN conspiracy C E R N yeah. conspiracists uh, and their <laughs> theories. You know. So uh, <laughs> thank that's you, right. And time went backwards, and he went back to Hawaii, and I got a full head of hair. It was amazing. It was miraculous. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or so let me leave my TARDIS key. <laughs> That's right. I need my scarf and my Dalek. And uh, you just uh, so as soon as I get to know people through their past and kind of uh, like knowledge of them and their self knowledge or, or lack of, uh, what what could I do after that, or where where does that head kind of? Uh, well, the, what that heads, I mean, of course, what that heads is either they thought of these things, in which case you can have a great conversation about it, and hopefully if they've developed any wisdom, they can ask, also ask you about yourself. Mm -hmm. you know, intimacy starts with history. Intimacy starts with history because who we are is so predicated on our history. And mm -hmm. and even if, again, even if you've rejected your history and so on, I mean, would I have come up with my parenting approach if I had not been so brutalized as a child? It seems highly unlikely. So even my peace, <laughs> the peace in my peaceful parenting comes from the war of my history. And so, mm -hmm. you know, people can't, the people who don't think about my history cannot understand. You know, where, where did I develop these reasoning skills? Well, from having, you know, massive, for 15 years straight. I mean, you really have to learn to think nimbly if you want to avoid that kind of stuff. Uh, you develop pretty agile tongue skills <laughs> for language. <laughs> Uh, and so on, if you have to keep um, pocketing in your cheek all the drugs you're being force-fed. Jaw mm -hmm. gymnastics. Uh, so, yeah, so people, I mean, anybody who cares to understand me, if, if they're at all interested in that, I mean, they, you, you start with my childhood. That's mm -hmm. where a lot of my stuff uh, comes from. That's where I saw the destructiveness of mysticism. That's where I saw the moral emptiness that's from religion, because on my father's side, there were all my aunts and uncles who I spent lots of time with in the summers in Ireland and so on. Mm -hmm. times, uh, and they all knew how baddie my mom was, and none of them did anything about it, though they were Christians and were mm -hmm. told to protect children at all costs by their Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, you know, to, to why, why, why am I skeptical of the two major solutions to moral problems called the state and called religion? Well, because <laughs> I grew up being brutalized in an environment where the state and religion ran morality, and no one did a damn thing to help me. And even as I after I became an adult and started talking to people about this stuff, people would clam up, never talk to me about it again because of their guilt. And so one of the reasons that I became very interested in ethics was realizing that the major problem in the world is child abuse and religion and the state are doing absolutely nothing, I believe, to fundamentally solve this problem. And so I needed another approach. So I mean, I could go on and on. I don't want to bore everyone with sort of my motives and histories, but this is where all of this stuff comes from. So if you want to get to know people, then get to know their histories. And okay. then and then if they – so if they know this stuff, great. They can start to talk about it. This, they'll ask you about it. You get even closer. If they don't know this stuff, then you start them down the road 
of not assuming that they are mere machines of the present, but recognizing that they, like trees, have roots that go, it would seem, to the very center of Earth and the very bowels of their history. And so if you give them self-knowledge, then you will give them freedom, right? But you cannot have free yeah. will if you do not have self-knowledge. You cannot have – that's why I always know people who are determinists in my experience, and the experience now has been quite considerable, lack self-knowledge. And so they are machines being run by defenses, being run by the unconscious, being run by avoidance, being run by culture, being run by nationalism. They do not have freedom because they do not have knowledge. Freedom is something that you earn through self-knowledge. If you do not have self-knowledge, you will not have freedom. So if you want to set the world free, give people the keys to the golden kingdom of the self, and that comes through the past. Okay. Yeah, and I, I would l thank you. I would love to ask you your opinion on dreams, although that's that's too much for today. Uh, I, I will ask you uh, maybe maybe shortly, uh, that, that brings up an interesting point. What is true spirituality, in your opinion? Um, well, I mean, I, I use the term spirit and soul. Um, so true spirituality, they're almost antonyms in the way that the words are current, commonly used. Yep. Uh, so um, I think that spirituality, to me, is, is to recognize, I sort of view the self, it's sort of kind of like a... Um, an hourglass, if that makes any sense. So we've mm -hmm. got this amazing conceptual, rational, scientific, philosophical reasoning ability, this intellectualism, these abstractions, which is sort of the bulge at the top. And we also have this amazing, which we share with the animals, of course, ability to, you know, eat, uh, eat broccoli and uh, write a poem. You know, a, uh, I wrote a poem a long time ago, which said, a, a pig is a great way to turn a human being uh, no, a human being is a great way to turn a pig into a poem because you eat some bacon <laughs> strength to write. And mm -hmm. so we have this amazing ability to transform the raw materials uh, of you know food and, and drink and so on into these amazing crystalline, beautiful, wonderful things called you know books and, and buildings and iPods and so on. Mm -hmm. And that all, a lot of that goes – and then down at the bottom, right, which we have these uh, very powerful dreams to this root – powerful, philosophical, incredibly insightful unconscious that gains strength the more it is repressed. I mean, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that spirituality is to recognize that, you know, from the very top of our greatest abstractions to the very bottom of the stuff we drop in the toilet bowl every morning, that is mm -hmm. the full range of human experience. So we can only go down with our minds so far. You know, I can't, uh, I can't go look inwards and examine uh, unless it's giving me pain or whatever. And so... <laughs> There's a certain amount that we can do in terms of introspection, but deep down where the knots of the brain go into the earth of the body, we can only go down so far. And that, to me, recognizing that full dimension and stretch of human experience and capacity is empathy. I mean, it is. If you things are, then it's really hard to harm them. You know, if, if a monkey can throw its shit at the Mona Lisa because it doesn't get how beautiful the Mona Lisa is. But once you get how beautiful the Mona Lisa is, you simply can't throw shit at it. And mm -hmm. so, uh, to me, spirituality is recognizing the full depth, grandeur, power, and possibility of human beings as a whole. Which means that cruelty becomes something that you just can't, can't do okay. anymore. You can't and, and uh, what you're, what, break what you, into the, the Sistine Chapel. What, okay, what you're saying also is that uh, self-knowledge un- uh, represses the deepest repressed parts of ourselves, potentially. Yes. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, we live in a world where 
almost all that is true is forbidden. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a uh, <laughs> an underground railroad where the truth has to be smuggled out from very vicious, coal-eyed, fiery-whipped slave owners. And there isn't like an underground railroad, which, of course, has now become lit to the skies, to the very universe through the Internet. But there's an underground railroad where we smuggle truth out into the world, which was formerly virtually impossible before the Internet. And so, um, that's so yeah, I I, I, it's a, yeah, I mean, this is I think that's what's so fantastic about about this community is that, you know, we will uh, do whatever it takes. Uh, you know, we will rip f- fingernails off our hands, clawing down the walls of repression and blindness and insularity and defensiveness and sometimes that's a caress and sometimes that's a scratch Mm -hmm. but uh, it is i think um uh, where we can get the only possibility for truth so yeah there's a lot of everything almost everything that is true and noble and good and pure and consistent in this world is is attacked and therefore it goes underground within it can only build the future by unlocking that potential in ourselves in the present I'm, I'm Steph. I'm really interested in this self knowledge that you speak of, and what is kind of the root of self knowledge? Can you uh, can you dig down to the 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 tap root so I can? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, it's look. It's, yeah. it's 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 self knowledge is like science in the age of religion. It's it's reason and evidence mm-hmm. without propaganda. That's all it is. I mean, yeah. it, 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 this is of the pursuit of knowledge in philosophy. It's reason and evidence, right? So. Uh, you know, I was told my whole life that, uh, you know, your parents are everything and you have to love your parents and, and you have to deal with your parents and you have to forgive your parents. And if you don't have a great relationship with your parents, you can't have a great relationship with everyone. I was given all of these rules, which are barely above, uh, ancient Egyptian curses. If you disturb the mummy, <laughs> that goes on, but there's a massive amount of propaganda, right? Yeah. They, and yeah, they, they, they left your head wound up like an Arab. <laughs> something like that okay and so for me it's it's like okay let's, let's put all of that aside and and let's look at the fact let's look at the fact mm-hmm. let's approach the parent-child relationship as if it were any other relationship now fortunately of course i had a comparison which was marriage right which of course uh, most of the people i knew were children of of divorced parents and the parents are divorced sometimes just because they were unsatisfied with their marriage, sometimes because there was abuse and, you know, sometimes because they were just bored. And so I thought, okay, well, hang on a sec. So if parents, children, that relationship, but somehow it has to be always present and you can't ever leave it. But husbands and wives do choose that relationship, but they can bored. How does the relationship that people choose how is that optional to leave? And in fact, is a good thing to leave if you're bored or abused or unhappy. But the parental relationship, which you don't choose, is something that you have to wear around your neck like a millstone if it's horrible for the rest of your life, no matter what. Mm-hmm. So you just, again, you just approach it. You approach the universe as if there was no Bible, right? Mm-hmm. So God is the unmoved mover. God placed the earth at the center of things. And so, but you say, well, okay, so let's just put the Bible aside. Let's just put all of that aside and let's look at the universe and see what shows us. Well, the evidence shows us that the sun is the center of the solar system, that, you know, the stars are suns, uh, you know, dozens of light years or hundreds of light years or thousands of light years away, uh, that the world is round, that, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so you, you, you simply put the mythology aside and you look at the actual facts. And that's, that's, that's hard to do. What's easier to do is to compare like to like. Right, so you say, okay, well, um, uh, when I, you know, when I deal with my world, 
my immediate world, I don't use God, right? So if I want to make a hammer, um, I go to a smithy. I go to a whatever, whoever, the hammer maker, <laughs> and I make a hammer. And I don't sort of just expect that the Bible is going to produce one or God's going to produce one or whatever. So if that's how I deal with my immediate reality, with, which is nothing to do with, with the Bible, then what if I just dealt with reality as a whole, as if there were no Bible, since that's how I deal with my life as it is. Mm-hmm. And so you can at least do the comparison like to like. And so when it comes to relationships to history, I say, okay, well, if I take away the mythology of family and I simply look at the relationships themselves, mm. what is good? What is bad? If I take away the mythology, if I take away the religion of the family, right? And so if I take away the mythology called the nation, the state, the law, chaos, anarchy, if I take away all of the emotionally charged propaganda and look at things philosophically, look at things as they are themselves, according to reason and evidence, not according to all of the fast food bullshit that was force-fed to me as a child, Mm -hmm. what do things look like? Self-knowledge is really around reason and evidence. What is the evidence? Right. So my last call to the guy, the guy was talking about, I want my sister to have a great relationship with my dad. I love my dad. Okay, love is a word. So... What do you love about your dad? What is the evidence? Yeah. What is the evidence? Not what is the mythology, not what does society approve of. And I'm not saying this about this last guy. I'm just talking because I don't know why he loved his dad and I couldn't really sort of figure it out. Mm-hmm. But the questions. I love so-and-so. Well, tell me what you love about them. Well, how can – okay, so if it's talent, well, lots of talented people in the world, so it can't really be that. It has to be something else, right? And so it really is just then unsentimental, unpropagandized, you know, rip the – bullshit scales from your eyes that everybody clamps down on them like uh, Britain's next generation geeky reference mm-hmm. but um, uh, so yeah it's it's simply looking at things directly uh, it's what uh, Noam Chomsky said you know he said uh, it's really not that difficult to to save the world I mean he wouldn't put it that way he doesn't like any kind of language like mm-hmm. but he said it's really not that difficult I mean, all you have to do is look at the facts and tell the truth. All you have to do is look at the facts and tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And that's really all self-knowledge is. Yeah. Wow. Steph, uh, this was definitely worth it. (laughs) (laughs) There was a pause there. All right. I could have been eating a cheeseburger. I could have been masturbating. I could have been doing any number of things. But I will count this one on the win column. All right. (laughs) No, I, I, I greatly appreciate it, Steph. I'm assuming you weren't eating a cheeseburger, let's say, while we were talking. Anyway, sorry, go on. No, uh, what – hey, by chance uh, – I greatly appreciate it. What is your uh, is your favorite author? I'm, I'm, sorry, to, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, we have a bunch of callers today, so I'd like to move on. Uh, I, could get, someone... I, I could get a one-word right. answer. Like, uh, actually, no, My, next no, time. Next time. Author? Next time. Yeah, next time. Let me let me think about that. All right, thank you so sorry. much. Sorry, thanks, James. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, uh, Albert. Um, I'm sorry to you know if yep. you don't have enough time today, but go on. Hi. Right. Um, hi to everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, just two things. One, uh, I think you can hear me, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, one, I think the the easiest way. Well, maybe not the easiest, but the quickest way besides informing people and self-knowledge, to break free from the state is to be self-sufficient. And that means, you know, having your own energy sources, growing your own food. I guess those would be the most important things. Um, I guess if you're in 
some rural areas or closer to um, more open land, then you can actually have clean water sources like wells and rivers and whatnot. But I think the solution would be to grow your own food, community gardens, rooftop gardens in the city and whatnot, and you got to break away from that which the state supplies. Now, I think the state will come after you eventually, um, you know, things like the FDA and the DEA and zoning department, whatever. They're going to come after you because they don't like when people can show others that the state is not needed. Now, that's, that's, that's my current belief, which brings me to a point, to a question or a criticism where some people might say, you know, you can't complain about uh, the government if you have a contract with it, such as a social security number, social insurance number. Uh, I think that having that, whether by choice or because your parents, you know, they didn't know any better and they signed, they gave you a number given by the state, that kind of binds you into the system. I mean, you, I guess I'm not sure about the law really, but I don't know how you would be able to be taxed if you can, if you didn't have a social security number. I mean, there's things like the so-called, uh, Freeman movement or, um, you know, reclaiming your birth, the denizens where you're not a citizen because you don't have this. Well, look, sorry, sorry. I, yeah. I, I just, uh, I sort of get, get where you're coming from. Yeah. And I mean, look, I, I obviously have no problem with people who want to do that. Right. Uh, it just seems to me kind of selfish. Kind of what? Um, selfish? Kind of selfish. Okay. And, I mean, please understand, it's perfectly fine. I mean, I'm just telling you what my thoughts are about it. There's, yeah, no, you know, there's no, no criticism. The reason it's selfish is that we got to help people. Yeah, right. go, go live in the woods. and You know, it's like no, I got no, this no, great cure for cancer, but I'm going to just take it with me to the woods and guard it like Gollum and its ring, right? So I think that you, we need to stay in society. I don't think that abandoning society is the way to, to help it. Um, society can help with this, right? If we, um, you know, if we abandon society in a time of plague, well, the plague is going to catch up with us. The government's going to get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger uh, unless we do something to, you know, to keep daylight, as the man sings. So I think that we need to stay in the world. I think we need to stay in society. I think we need to keep talking to people and keep making our case. Uh, and I don't see how you can do that if you sort of go, go off the grid. Uh, and I don't think it's necessary as yet. And, of course, if you're going off the grid – then you're not free of the state because you're only off the grid because the state is there. So I don't see how that makes us, uh, if, if makes us any more free. Yeah, please. Um, I don't see why – now, look, if, uh, I don't see why it necessarily means going off the grid or into the wilderness. Well, I know because you're calling on a phone, right? Yes. Right, so you're on the grid, right? Right. No, no, okay. This is, this is my point. I'm not saying that uh, – you have to, I mean, totally disconnect, but you can take steps, right? So like, when I said rooftop gardens, because I live in the city, so, I mean, it's just not that easy. But, one, if, if, you're, if, if you're growing your own food with uh, community gardens uh, or within a community, you know, small scale, helping each other out as much as possible. And obviously, 
you build up. Sorry, I just right? I just want to make sure because I, I just want to make sure the show stays interesting. Are you saying that this is something that's not a bad thing to do? I can believe, I, can, I, I think we agree. There's nothing wrong with growing in your own food. If you live in a city, there are possibilities for interruptions of the food supply and so on. So, so I'm with you on that. I just want to make sure that if you either get to a question or something that we disagree with, uh, that would be helpful. Okay. Um, well, I, okay. I guess I disagreed about the. Uh, you kind of assume that. You know, to break free from the government, you, it, it has to be cold turkey. Maybe I'm wrong in that, in that, but um, you can take it by steps. Which is, you know, there's alternative energy sources, solar panels, and 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 you know, wind generators, things like that. But I think one step at a time is useful and easier than you know trying to be completely self-sufficient, going to the woods, and also. It, so you're you what you're saying is to those who argue, ah, well. You know, you still have a social security number. You can't complain. That is being selfish. Yeah. No. Look, I mean, people like that. Why would you want to have anything anything to do with them? No. Just like saying to a slave, "Well, you still eat your master's food, so you've got no reason to complain about being a slave." Uh, screw you, man. I, I can't deal with I can't deal with chuckleheads like that. Right. I mean, they're they're so propagandized that there's just no point. You know, we have to pick our battles. We have to do triage. People like that, it's like it's like you're a doctor coming in. It's some some guy comes in who's you know got a collapsed lung, and some other guy comes in who's been beheaded. It's like I think I'm going to work on the guy with the collapsed lung because I can save that guy. The guy who's beheaded, oh, forget it. You know, this, it would be a, it would be an insult to the guy who's only injured to deal with the guy who's completely terminal. And so you you don't do CPR on a zombie. <laughs> you just don't. And there are so many chuckleheads out there who are propagandized to the point where their soul has been replaced by a bunch of leaflets from their local <laughs> politician. That's all that's there. And all they're going to do is they're going to attempt to project all of their fears, anxieties, and deadness onto you by creating doubt and fear and uncertainty and this and that and the other. And it's such a transparently ridiculous argument to call a social insurance number. I think it's an insult to the word contract. Uh, you know, when I buy a computer at a computer store, and they say, do you want an extended warranty with that? That's a fucking contract. A piece of paper that I have to sign in order to get health care, that is not a contract. That is a hostage taking. And I'm just not going to blame the victim in those situations. So I just, I, I'm certainly not going to organize my life to deal with propagandized fools who are never going to see the light of day, even if you peel their eye, eyelids off. So I just don't I, make my decisions based upon those criticisms. I, I agree. I agree with that. What what you said, but I think you're going to extremes because um, it's still possible. I mean, I get it's extremely difficult, but I would expect that it's 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 still possible to survive even by getting rid of your social security. So, I mean, you're still going to need people within. But that's not freedom because then you just fear you fear arrest all the time. You you you're so limited in what you can do. You you so many things you can't do. What do you mean? I mean, I don't, I don't see why you would be fearing. I mean, what they don't have a file to, you know, to process you through. I mean, so there, there's nothing like there's nothing that connects you to their their game almost. I mean, I think you would still need someone in the game to build up the self sufficiency, right? I mean, you still need someone with uh, probably a land permit or someone who pays property taxes, right, or someone who as a building, somewhat, um, but I, I still I think that incrementally you can you can resist and 
get away. All right. Well, I'll, I'll certainly agree with you that if you know if people want to start becoming more self-sufficient, I think I think that's a great idea. I have no problem right. with it whatsoever. So, do you mind if we move on to the next caller? Because I think that we're uh, we're in agreement with each other, and so I'd like to move on if that's right with you. Okay. Uh, not Thanks, exactly. Uh, all right. Anyway, take care. Take care. Okay, Steph. What I was wanting to to broach with you is the fact that I think we pretty well agree that everything that our government tries to do pretty well gets messed up, which pretty well indicates that governments as a whole are pretty well incompetent. Now, here's the question. With governments being so incompetent, why have they managed to keep us, well, pretty well tax-slaved? Why, why do you think they're incompetent? Well, because basically everything they do pretty well gets messed up. They don't really accomplish anything that they're going after. Um, everybody says that we're trying to get equal rights, but what they end up doing is just granting advantage to a different group of people. Nobody wants to be sorry, equal. But I'm trying to, sorry, you, you say that everything they try to do gets messed up? Pretty much. I'm not sure what I mean by that. Well, um, oh, uh, okay, let's just take the example of balancing a budget. I have never seen a government that's been able to balance one yet. Why do you think they're interested in balancing their budget? Well, at least that's what they claim, anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> but, I mean, we're smart enough to look beyond the obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Well, a balanced budget would end up getting the people that are sitting in power reelected, so they would be able to resecure their own jobs. Sorry, you think a balanced budget would get people elected? I think it would get the sitting power and people reelected. Why do you think that that would be the case? Well, if the people that were sitting in the office currently that they're elected to were actually able to accomplish what they claimed they were going to accomplish, that being a balanced budget, as an example, wouldn't that get someone reelected? Well, how would you balance a budget? How would I balance the budget? Right. So let's say <laughs> well, you're in charge of the government. So what would you do to balance the budget? Um, I actually don't believe that it is unbalanced in Go reality. On. And we're just being fed a whole line of garbage from, you know, media that is owned by the government. Yeah, I mean, I guess when people say the government is incompetent, my question is always, at what, right? Uh, I, I think the government is incredibly competent at what it does, because it, which is it is propagandizing people, uh, it's securing its power, uh, it is uh, making people dependent upon the government. And crippling people's brains to the point where they think that only government guns can be the solution to any significant problem. Uh, I mean, in terms of coming up with one fear-mongering scare after another, from the war on drugs to the war on illiteracy to the war on terror to global warming to global cooling to <laughs> to uh, acid oh, rain pandemics. to yeah, uh, flu pandemics to um, uh, holes in the ozone to alar in the apples to I mean razor blades and Halloween candy for children. It's brilliant. I mean, it's God, brilliant. That, it's that a cavalcade of hell. I'm sorry? That myth about the razor blades and the candy, that's, that myth has been around forever. 
yeah, there's no truth in it at all. It's all nonsense, right? So, but this is, I mean, so as far as I'm concerned, they're they're perfectly brilliant at maintaining power over the population. They create scares. And then they take over power to solve these problems, and then those problems get worse, which they use as as an excuse to take over more of society, and everything they do turns to shit, and then they blame freedom for the results of their own violent tendencies. I mean, it's, it's completely brilliant. Look, a guy who's abusing his wife terribly, who gets his wife to stay with him and nurse him on his deathbed for 40 years... Uh, is a bad husband, but is a brilliant abuser. Well, the point that I'm trying to get at is I don't think that the government is actually consciously aware of what it's doing. Uh, I know a lot of people that from, you know, uh, having gone to all the way through school with them that decided to get into politics with completely altruistic motives. But anything that gets implemented seems to uh, reduce down to the lowest common denominator, and any system made by human beings seems to be fouled, and they all just end up creating the same problem over and over again. Well, but that's because they're not interested in solving the problems. If you gave people in government a switch that tomorrow would make all children raised well, which would result in almost no criminals, in almost no drug abuse, in almost no physical, emotional, sexual, or verbal abuse, um, would the government throw that switch and throw themselves out of a job? Of course not. The government does not work to eliminate itself any more than a company works to eliminate its own market. A company works, works to expand its own market. And the market for government is evil masquerading as its own cure. So the government has no desire to eliminate evil because evil is what scares people into running into the embrace of the state. So I think that they're doing very well. I don't think that they're incompetent at all. I mean, they're incompetent if you think that they're there to solve the problems of poverty and illiteracy. and and They're not there to solve those problems. The reason that there's public school is twofold. One is to indoctrinate. Well, threefold, I guess. One is to indoctrinate. Second is to create a massive class of dependent educators who will never talk trash about the state because they are dependent upon the state. And the third is to free up women to go and become tax slaves to the system. So, I mean, as far as that goes, it's working beautifully. If you think that the goal is education, then it's working very badly. But the fact that it continues even though it's working badly means that it is working well, it just in some other way. I think it's also true that the parents uh, in some ways really want their children to be propagandized because the parents were propagandized. And if the children aren't propagandized when the parents were, there's going to be a lot of problems in those relationships. So that's why a lot of Christians don't send their kids to atheist camp, right? Because <laughs> they have a lot less in common, right? Or, or atheist camp would make the kids ask uncomfortable questions. Uh, and so this is, I mean, so uh, people who were raised in public schools and propagandized in public schools, they, you know, they have a draw, not all, right? They have a draw. They have a tendency to want their children to go through the same shit they did. Well, I guess this goes hand in hand with uh, the opinion. One of the best teachers I ever had through the, again, public school system, uh, if you ever asked him a question about, 
uh, well, politics or how the world is run and that kind of thing, the first thing he said to you is, do you want me to give you the answer the school wants me to say, my real opinion, or what the truth is? <laughs> Hopefully the last two would be somewhat hand in hand. Right. What was that? Hopefully the last two would be somewhat hand in hand, but yeah. yeah. Well, they're pretty close. Uh, one of the best teachers I ever had, and unfortunately he's not teaching anymore. But yet again, high school for me was a long time ago. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I, I would just reassess, you know, whether you think the government is, is good or, or bad at stuff, right? I mean, it's like saying that um, some company that, that sells chemotherapy is really bad at preventing cancer. Well, that's not their business model. Their business model is not to prevent cancer, but to cure it in a ghastly way <laughs> or try to. Yeah. Right. So um, you have to understand the quote, business model. And I use the word business somewhat insultingly to actual businessmen. But um, the, the, the purpose of the government is, is not to prevent or solve problems, but to scare the population into surrendering more and more power and money to the state. And in that, it's, it's brilliant. Perfect. It's a, it's a it's a glorious evil beast. It's like a uh, perfectly spherical Death Star without even that <laughs> Brian Adams pimple crater on the side. Uh, it's uh, it's a, a perfect machine of black beauty. Yeah, that's like something uh, George Carlin once said. The rich are the people that run the country. The middle class are the ones that pay for the bills and do all the work, and the poor are kept there by the rich just to scare the shit out of the middle class. Yeah, I think that's fairly I think that's fairly close. Although I would divide it not into classes but into uh, violence, right? There are people who use and profit from violence and there are people who use and profit from voluntarism. And th those are the only real two classes in society. I mean, uh, the um, you know, the rich guy who's getting government contracts has much more in common with you know, the, the able-bodied guy getting welfare than he does with some other rich guy who's actually operating in what remains of the free market. So the only line in the world is between the those who praise and profit from violence and those who praise and profit from voluntarism. Those are the only fundamentally the two classes in the world and everything else is, uh, is uh, to me, just a bunch of obscuring nonsense. Well, thanks for taking the call here, stuff, And uh, I guess I'll let you get on to the next person. Thanks, and I have this irresistible urge to call you old-timer because I view you as somebody who's probably sitting around in a cave in a Yosemite Sam costume, entirely unjustly, I'm sure, but I just wanted to share with you my impulse. Well, no, I'm actually sitting at a little tiny apartment in St. Catharines. <laughs> oh, yes, I think we've heard from you before. Welcome back. Oh, yeah, and uh, basically I'm in a little tiny apartment in St. Catharines because uh, a bunch of uh, foreign nationals were able to operate a criminal gang uh, in the business that was next door to mine, and they put me out of business. I'm sorry to hear I that. I lost I'm my shirt. Right. But the great part was that because I'm not an idiot, I managed to get myself completely 100% out of debt within two years of my business folding. So I'm up to oh, being good broke. For you. <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, there's an old story um, from a guy I don't particularly admire. Um, Donald Trump. Uh, was walking up to when he was really in the ditch financially. He was walking up to some building where he was trying to land a deal, and he turned to some guy walking with him, pointed at the panhandler, and said, you know that guy is $8 million richer than I am? Because <laughs> that's how much he was in debt, or some ridiculous amount. So, yeah, it's uh, sometimes just getting out of debt is a wealth in and of itself. Mm, well, you know, it, it's, it's great to just know that you, no matter 
how bad things got, you could just walk away from it. Nobody could come after you legally. Yeah, that's that's a kind of freedom in that too. All right, well, thank you so much. We'll move on to the next call. Not a problem. All right, well, uh, Kevin, you're up. You're up. We need to talk about Kevin. Sorry, go on. I just saw that movie. I, I recommend it. Hello, Kevin. Oh, he may not be at the phone. Uh, we'll go into Keith and then Kevin. Keith. All right, Steph, it's me again. Be as hey, how's it going? As possible. Um, oh, mate. Um, I think you're, first of all, you know, for anyone else, because everyone asked about, oh, do you still have issues with Steph and stuff? But we, we sort of talked about that on Skype. And, um, you know, I think, you know, there were different circumstances. Your advice was uh, uh, helpful for the large part, but I also don't think you know enough about me um, and, and my history and, and sort of vice versa. But for what it was, it was it was helpful and it motivated me. So, and I think I wrote to you, like, all the stuff that I was doing, looking for a job and, and all this stuff. Um, yeah, my goal was just uh, to be the brick wall that might help you turn well. around. That was all. Sorry, go ahead. Well, you know, it, it was it was it was helpful. It was it was it was motivational, you know, and uh, and uh, I think I think I had such a negative effect, but it, because uh, that's all the negative shit, just uh, sort of saying no, voice of reason might be wrong. Let's keep in this situation. I don't know, but so yeah, I was I was pushing forward. I was doing stuff. I was making goals, and um, I had. A, um, I, I lost my temper quite badly with a friend of mine, um, and uh, another friend was there, and she doesn't want to have any contact with me anymore. Um, I, don't know, I was, I was quite, it was quite bad. I was, I was quite aggressive. I threatened him. I was abusive and he'd done nothing wrong I might add he, he did nothing wrong no, I'm sorry I was that. just merely I was merely jealous of his successes um, and I just want to know why I'm doing this because as I say things were going really well I, I was experiencing fear and anxiety but I was I knew what that was and I was prepared to deal with that and I kept myself busy and I, I, I had, you know, goal, goals written down, um, written down on the computer, and I'd written all this stuff. Uh, I'd written sort of pages and pages of goals. I'd cleaned my flat from top to bottom in the space of a couple of days, where that would have taken me, you know, weeks or something. And, and you know, so this this kind of like insane jealousy, and also not just that, just this. Uh, all right, sorry, just, just because we're going to, if I get too much information, I won't be yeah, able to no. deal with anything in particular. So you said you got angry at your friend because of his success. Yeah, I always, I always give out loads. I always give out loads. Yeah, yeah, let's just keep it specific. Um, yeah, well, mate. Yeah, uh, okay. Um, he'd gone out with this girl, and I was jealous of that. Um, he's sort of younger than me. He's better looking than me, in my opinion. He's uh, stronger than me. But we've had similar histories. 
but I just feel like I, I'm I'm I just feel like a like I'm a bad guy. I feel like I'm I'm horrible. Like. Right, so you yeah, feel, feel that like he's I'm, making. Uh, sorry, let me just. Uh, so you, you feel that he's making a greater success of his life, though you had similar histories. Is that right? Yeah. And what does that mean to you? That's what I felt. Like that, yeah. Yeah. So what does that mean to you? Like, so what does that mean? If let's say that that's true, I don't know, obviously, but let's say that it's true that he's doing better, although you had similar histories. What does that mean about you? Oh, oh! I know, I know what that means. It means like uh, I know. Well, what I can guess it must mean that I'm, I'm, I'm a bad person or something. You know. Well, it, it means that you could be doing better, but you're not, right? No. No. Sorry. No. What? No, I'm not. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, I'm not. I could be. I could be doing better, but I'm not. I'm still giving in to. Uh, rational thoughts and worries about what people think of me and how I look to other people and showing no ounce of uh, self-respect towards myself still. Um, right. I got a message. I, 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 I got a message from my 10-year-old sister recently. Sorry, I, sorry. No, 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 no. Let's I just stay know. with your friend. <laughs> Let's stay with your friend. <laughs> we to do one topic, okay? Um, really? Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I just one topic. Coral, I'm sorry. But yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, we'll uh, go okay. deep, not wide. Okay. So, why do you think your okay. friend is doing okay. better? Okay. Is it because he has superior self-knowledge? Uh, is it because he's gone to more therapy? Is it because he's become wiser? Is it because he's confronted his demons? Why is your friend doing better? Oh, because he's put the work in. He really. You know, so he's yeah. put the work in. Oh, yeah. He really and has. how so? Yeah, evidence. Uh, evidence has shown that um, he's. Uh, well, you can just see it the way he is with people. You know, I was jealous because a lot of people liked him and he was getting more female attention. But he puts the effort in. He's always positive, you know. Whereas I'm always kind of like. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry, what do you mean? He puts, sorry, I thought, sorry, sorry to interrupt. When you say he put the effort in, I thought you meant he'd like gone to therapy, he'd worked on himself, he'd you know done that kind of stuff. But what do you mean? Yeah. Well, exactly that. He's he's put more work into um, how he copes with things, you know. Because that situation, he said a couple of years ago, he would have responded back to me, but he didn't. He walked away in that situation. So he's right. grown. So he's and become. Doing so sorry. So so an option, right? One option that you have, right? So because it all so much of things is right. This is an old line from Hamlet says there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so, right? So there's a lot of stuff that really depends on how we look at it. So you could look at this guy and say, you know, what a, what a bastard, I feel like shit. So I'm going to level up with him by trying to pull him down to my level. That's one option, right? Now, another option is you can say, holy shit, it's possible. It's possible. I could not only end up with what this guy's got, but I could get even more. It's possible. He got out of a wheelchair and is walking around. So rather than trying to cripple him again, I can be like, holy shit. You mean we can get out of these wheelchairs and stay out? That's fantastic. Tell me. Tell me how you did it. Right? You could be enthusiastic. You could, you could ask him for advice. He could, but, but this is a challenge for you, right? Because you were not treated well by authority figures, to say the least, when you were younger. 
And so if you go to this guy and you say, tell me how to get what you've got, you're teaching him as an authority figure, and that's hard for you, right? Yeah. It's hard, but I I don't I I don't think that should be an excuse. I should be I should be do I'd not be acting this way. No, I'm not. Look, I'm not trying yeah, to give you excuses. Right? Thing, I'm not trying uh, to give you excuses. I'm just trying to look, mean, if you want to know why. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The why is that he makes you feel bad because he's further ahead and that makes you feel guilty and it makes you feel angry and it also doesn't it doesn't it make you feel a little panicked like time's running out to change to grow because every time you abuse someone it gets harder to not abuse them next time right and after a while I believe habits become almost irrevocable and so there's a kind of panic if you're not growing as yeah. fast as you need or if somebody else is showing you a better way to be that you're not pursuing. There's kind of like a panic. We don't have forever, right? So let's say – I'm not saying you, you would, but let's say you were a, an abusive guy until you were 85. And then somebody said, well, you've got cancer. You've got a month to live, right? Right. Well, what would be the point of changing <laughs> almost, right? Sometimes it's too late. to do anything meaningful with change. And when that is for everyone is a different time. But I believe there's a tipping point. You know, like you, you've you got a, a seesaw. What would you, I don't know what you call it. I can't remember what you call it in England. Um, but the thing where two kids, they go up and down uh, on this this uh, plank, they got seats on either end, and there's a little pyramid in the middle. They go up and down. Well, it's like changes, habits are like walking up. It's kind of hard to begin with, and then, but then it tips once you walk over the middle. And then it's, right? And I think that, there's a tipping point for our habits, whether they're good habits or bad habits, where it becomes harder and harder and then virtually impossible to quit. So you also may be experiencing a kind of a kind of panic about how much time you have left to change. Yeah. It's not forever. Oh, I'm oh, telling yeah. you. That, that, when you say panic, yeah, no. That, okay. I mean, it doesn't help as well. This this is an excuse, but um, I, I found out my brother's been singing in a band, uh, and and I, I've always wanted to be a singer. But my brother always got uh, praise for his singing, and then I thought, well, what did I used to get told about myself as a child? And it was just like that. I was just like I was angry, Keith. I was I was Keith that acted out. Keith that was trouble. That I was trouble. I always just got noticed for the bad things I did. Like it's it's like it's hard for me to see myself being successful, and any positive attention I get from people, it, it is feels very uncomfortable. It's like I'm at, I'm at home with feeling like Keith the bad guy, when like surely that's just like a small part of me. Right. I, but yeah, I definitely relate to the, the panic stuff definitely, and the whole time running out thing because it's how I view myself. It's like if I can view myself as someone not doing that stuff, you know, and all I can do is try and research what, you know, all this 
stuff about cope, how people cope with anger, what scientific research, research has shown about anger and stuff, you know. But I yeah, like and I'm look, I mean, when I you know? when I was trying to deal with my temper, um, which is not certainly not perfect again, when I was trying to deal with my temper, I just you know take a deep breath, count to ten, walk away, just remind myself it's a choice, it's a choice, it's a choice. I have a temper. Yeah. My temper doesn't yeah. have me. It's a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice. I can do anything with this situation. I can do anything with this moment. Those kinds of things can be helpful. Look, I'm I'm no expert on this and anger management courses I'm sure are very good, but but you do have a choice. Yeah. And you know, the conversation that we had that was troubling for you, I mean, I just sometimes people only turn around when they hit a brick wall and I tried to be that brick wall for you. And <laughs> I'm sorry if you go if you bumped your nose, yeah. but at least it got you turned around. So, I'm I'm certainly happy for that. Uh, that, no, that I mean that's okay. I, I, you know, um, you you only had what I gave, what I had to give you in terms of like knowledge about my situation and stuff. So, um, all right. Listen, do you mind if we got a couple you know, of other I mean, calls before the end like of the show? To, I think uh, I'd like to uh, move on if that's all right. But uh, we we'll definitely look at the feelings that occurred right before you get angry. I think that's where the um, where the possibility for change occurs and uh, really, really work. You, I'm sure you can get some anger management courses uh, around that will, will help you out with that stuff. And I certainly wish you the best with it. And I hope to get to hear you sing someday. <laughs> okay. Well, how, no, yeah, sure. I mean, how do you feel about the conversation and stuff? I, mean, I, I worried that I kind of alienated some people, you know, well, I don't know about others. I think that um, you certainly did seem to get quite angry after the conversation, but that's okay. I mean, you know, people, you know, I try to do the good that I can with the info that I have and uh, all of the caveats in the world. So yeah. it's not important for people to like me, but it's important, I think, that, you know, people try and get some level of truth, uh, at least as far as I see it, uh, from me. So that's the best that I can uh, hope for. And it sounds like it's at least shaken things up for you and given you some new ways of approaching it and I'm certainly happy for that because I would hate for the rest of your life to be like your early years and I, I certainly want better than that for you thank you very much Steph and you know and I appreciate the work you do on here as well so. alright well thanks Keith I'll talk to you soon uh, thanks man bye alright bye alright next we have Kevin Hey, how's it going, Steph? That's right. This this uh, show is brought to you by the letter K. Um, <laughs> so go on. Yeah, uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, maybe some alternate methods of promoting NAP and nonviolence uh, besides you know moral arguments and you know the violence against me arguments. I feel that uh, some people it just doesn't work, and I don't necessarily think that means that they're they're bad people that they just have an, an ego that they're so ingrained with these thoughts and ideas that it's it's really difficult for them to give up. Um, and I was wondering if you know more socioeconomic arguments would be just as effective or as you know long lasting as something like a moral argument. So so saying like uh, you know these forceful interactions aren't as efficient and it uh, it would benefit everybody economically to uh, only have voluntary interactions, do you think that would be just as good as forces, you know, bad in general? I don't think so, no. Um, and I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that off the cuff. You might want to read a book called The Myth of the Rational Voter, which sounds like really a dull book, but it's actually a very good book. Um, the arguments say for free trade, 
right? So free trade is makes everybody richer, uh, except for the people who formerly had protectionist trade. Uh, it free trade makes uh, everyone richer. Uh, the economy grows faster. There are more opportunities. There are more jobs, uh, and so on. Uh, this argument has been made for. 350 years mm -hmm. and very few people believe it and this argument has been made for 350 years it is held onto as true as, as axiomatic really uh, by, by the vast majority of economists um, and yet very few people accept it and so I, I figure if something hasn't worked for 350 years I don't think that 351 is going to make a difference. If tens of thousands of highly educated experts have made the case for hundreds of years and it's penetrated the thick marble-like skulls of almost no people in the world, I don't think that one more round, the merry-go-round, by me or by you or you know other people who don't have PhDs in economics, uh, I just don't think it's going to make any difference. And, and one of the reasons why I avoided the arguments from effect, as I call them, it's because, you know, as a student of history, I kind of wanted to look at stuff that had worked and stuff that hadn't worked. And I really got that the free market arguments, you know, when I was doing research for a historical novel that I was writing set in the 17th century, 18th century, sorry, I read a book called England's Treasure by Foreign Traffic, which was, I think it was 18th century, early 18th century book, which went over all of the arguments for free trade. And, you know, in the 19th century, there were the Corn Laws, which were around, you know, liberalizing trade in, in England and so on. One of the reasons England had an empire was it was one of the first free trading countries around. And, you know, after all of that history, free trade in England is is pretty terrible. I mean, the, the, the number of people that you would get who would understand the arguments for free trade, you know, one in a hundred maybe, two in a hundred if you're lucky. So... I just looked at 350 years, tens or hundreds of thousands of experts, thousands of books. Uh, the combined current expertise of the greatest specialists in the field is almost unanimous about the virtues of free trade. And you try running as a politician on the platform of free trade and just see what happens to you. It doesn't work. But you, but you do think uh, free trade is a good idea. It's just that's not the way to convince somebody to not be violent. Well, you can't even convince somebody that free trade is a good idea. I mean, of course, I think that free trade is it's not just a good idea. Free trade is the only moral thing that you can have because otherwise you're initiating the use of force, which is evil. So, yeah, I mean, free trade is just non-theft. <laughs> That's all it is. I mean, right. I'm not for free trade. I'm against sticking guns in people's faces. I'm against violence as a way of dealing with any problem other than immediate self-defense. So, yeah, but I'm, you know, free trade is, you know, and, and the re I mean, there's tons of reasons why it doesn't work. And, you know, they're explained in my podcast and in this guy's book and lots of other places, tons of reasons why it doesn't work as an argument. But basically, arguments from effect don't work because the benefits are diffused and, sorry, the costs are diffused and the benefits are concentrated, right? So if you want to get rid of the tariff that the U.S. currently has on sugar, then it might save everyone in America a couple of bucks, 10, maybe 15 bucks a year, but it would cost the sugar industry millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. And so they'll spend tons of money lobbying the government to maintain these laws. 
and um, but nobody's going to spend a lot of money opposing these laws because it's just not worth it. Right. And so, I mean, and there's tons more reasons, but that's sort of the basic reason. I mean, how the hell is a goddamn government teacher going to tell you about free trade when they're paid by the violence of the state, when you're forced to be there by the violence of the state, when competition is simply not allowed because taxpayers have to pay for government schools, whether they use them or not, where the government controls the regulation, the licensing of teachers, where government controls the curriculum. I mean, how can, how can a teacher with a straight face tell you about free trade? That's why the government likes taking over teachers, is that it turns them into tools and lackeys and mouthpieces of the state. So, you know, just people have never heard about it. And it's also a bit counterintuitive, right? There's lots of biases that people have in economics, right? There's a pro-labor bias, which says somehow that getting rid of labor, using labor-saving devices, throws people out of work. I mean, that's retarded, of course, and it doesn't take more than a moment's thought to, to get that that's nonsense. I mean, we could put everyone back to full employment if we got rid of all farm machinery and went back to threshing corn by hand. Yeah. But everyone would get that that'd be going back to the Middle Ages and would make everybody half-starved to death. So and, and this, so there's like an anti-labor bias or anti-labor saving device bias. There's a bias about um, uh, my team versus their team when it comes to nations or whatever. Uh, that uh, if 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 China has manufacturing jobs, that that it's stealing jobs as a whole from America and so on. Right? That's just it's it's you know people need education to get over. That which seems to make sense in the moment, right? So you like you need a little bit of nutritional information to understand why you shouldn't have cheesecake for breakfast, right? Right. Cheese takes, cheesecake take uh, tastes a hell of a lot better than brown toast and <laughs> a little bit of butter. Uh, and so people need education, but education alone uh, just just doesn't do it. I mean, the, because the problem with free trade is not its economic inefficiency. Economic inefficiency is no argument at all. I mean, having children is economically inefficient. Does that mean that the human race should die out? I mean, children take a huge amount of time and money. And so economic efficiency is not what people do. If somebody has a hobby that doesn't pay them money, that is economically inefficient, right? If you have a hobby called, I don't know, uh, uh, origami or something, and you just like making little origami things, well, and you don't sell them, that's economically inefficient because you could be using that time to have a second job. But who cares? I mean, that doesn't that doesn't matter. The people don't live their lives according to economic efficiency. There's much more that goes on in people's motivations than economic efficiency. So it just doesn't motivate people that much. Okay, and sort of a, a related question would be, uh, you know, some of these advertisements where you see people say, "Oh, make money off of the coming economic crisis or collapse or something like that." That what do you think about businesses that try to Make money, not necessarily deceiving people, but uh, you know, promoting making money after a you know a big change towards a more free society. Sorry, can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean? Uh, you know, is it possible that you know a company or or a business of some sort could make money? Promoting these ideas, like your your business, right, promotes sort of these ideas, and you know uh, you've got foundations that promote freedom and you know free trade and nonviolence. That are these uh, are these good ideas? I mean, not necessarily from promoting the ideas perspective, but actually making money, uh, preparing people to 
assume a more violence-free existence. I'm sorry. I'm, can you try it one more time? I'm still not getting what the question is. Um, uh, would more of these businesses speed up the processes? I guess is what I'm saying. If a business, well, I don't, it's yeah. tough. You know, see, businesses don't usually drive demand in that kind of way. Um, if if more people got anxious about the future of the society that they live in, then the, these businesses would do better. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, the, you know, in this this book, the myth of the rational voter, the the writer talks about this sort of perspective in economics, which is that you know, for two hundred years there's been steady economic growth, but everyone feels that a catastrophe is just around the corner, and more people in the general population believe that economic catastrophe is around the corner than people do in academia, uh, in sort of professional economists. And you know, you can make the argument, well, these guys have tenure and pensions and they're not, they're not particularly worried about stuff if they were entrepreneurs it might be different there seems to be some evidence against that but there is this belief among economists that people tend to be more pessimistic than necessary and you know some people who've been talking about economic collapse have been talking about it since the 1970s and something that david friedman said at libertopia he said you know i've been listening to libertarian economists talk about the coming collapse of the u.s dollar and you know, reversion to Raquel Welsh stalking primitivism uh, for 40 years, and yet we're still muddling along now. And that's, of course, a, a good point. That having been said, there are times where the shit genuinely hits the fan. You know, the, the collapse of Rome genuinely took the population of Rome from like a million people down to 17,000 people in, you know, a pretty short period of time. The collapse of the Reich in the Weimar Republic in the 1920s, you know, ushered in Hitler and the Second World War. Uh, the dollar has lost 98% of its purchasing power in less than 100 years. So there, you know, if you look at what happened in Argentina or other places where fiat currencies have collapsed, which is basically all fiat currencies, except for the British pound, which has been running for a couple of hundred years, but still has lost almost all of its value from when it started, Um there is not slow, slow and steady economic growth and progress. Uh, there are times where unbelievably multidimensional human catastrophes emerge out of financial crises, and so I, I, you know, I think it certainly is easy to get sucked into the, you know, let's get lots of tin goods and live in the woods stuff. But at the same time, I think that poo-pooing all of that stuff and saying, well, you know, human race has been muddling along. There was a there was an old, um, a pretty good show that I used to watch when I was a kid called WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it, I, thought it was a, I thought it was a damn fine show. Very funny. And in one of them, and I really remember watching this when I was, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13 years old. The, the guy who became the Maytag guy, Arthur Carlson, his name was, uh, his wife was having a baby and they were like old. Well... <laughs> I thought they were old when I was 12 or 13. I, I might not think they're quite so old now. But um, he was really ambivalent about having the kid. And he said, you know, these are troubled times, my dear. And she said, people have been saying that for 5,000 years. And I remember when I was a kid, that really struck me. I, must, I sat there. I turned the TV off. I sat there in the dark. It was growing dark. It was getting nighttime. I sat there in the dark watching all the lights go on in the apartment building across the way. I sat there in the dark, and I thought, damn, that's really something to think about. 
These are troubled mm-hmm. times, my dear. That People have been saying that for 5,000 years. And it's like, that's true. People do what we say. These are troubled times. But you know what? Sometimes they're right. <laughs> and that was my big profound insight to, <laughs> to come out of that. That you can't just say, ah, anybody who says they're troubled times is, is nonsense, right? People in the 1930s in Europe who said these are troubled times, well, they were pretty damn right. And so... Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry, that was a bit of a rambling answer. It may not even have been an answer, but uh, that's the best I can say about the subject. Well, sounds good. All, All right. right. Well, thanks so much. <laughs> thanks, and, uh, don't Don't panic too much and, for God's sake, get some tin food. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's up to you. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks, man. Do we have any questions we've been missing from the chat room? Oh, I've been uh, pinging. People to say, uh, someone wants you to talk about the documentary. Documentary. Well, uh, I met with the project manager on Friday and bought my lovely daughter because the project manager doth have one of the most adorable kittens this side of a tear-jerking secretary-style poster uh, slash calendar. And so, um, yeah, we've gone over. We've got a whole bunch of volunteers. Um, she's going to be uh, organizing it. Her name is Julia. And she's going to be organizing stuff. And, um, you know, <laughs> we've, we've got some enormously significant musical talent, which is great. Uh, and so we, you know, we've got some voice people, some editing people. Um, I've got a, um, a animators, uh, a production companies interested in donating some time. So, And the script is coming along. I'm actually starting to get a little bit more comfortable with the script. Uh, I've been working on it for about a month now. And, I mean, I really have to get it. It's hard, hard, hard writing. You know, it's easy to blurb down some ideas. It's really hard to get them concentrated and in sequence and to keep it short enough to get people's interests. But, um, you know, my goal with the documentary is to have people come out of the theater into a different world that they went into. And that is a, uh, you know, that is a challenge, you know, to to switch off the matrix for people is really a big, <laughs> a big goal. But as anybody who knows who's listened to the show, I am not immune to grandiose goals and visions. So, yeah, that is the uh, that is the goal. I was just working, uh, literally working for an hour. I was working for two hours this morning on the first five sentences. Um, <laughs> so it really is. Nitpicky city. <laughs> That's where I'm living on. So yeah, if you want to help, um, it's not going to be cheap to produce. Uh, it's not going to be uh, easy to get done. So if you have time and money and energy to throw at the cause, it's hugely appreciated. But I can certainly tell you that we are going to do the very best job that we can. And um, you know, without the same ending as Jurassic Park, we spared no expense. Spared no expense. That's the uh, you know, hopefully without too many lawyers being eaten by Tyrannosaurus rexes. Well, okay, maybe a few. Get that on film. You've got a great, quite a documentary, and probably some ragged cheers going out from the audience. What is the documentary about? Well, I think that um, you'll have to see it to see. I guess production time scale. I'm hoping six months. Uh, I'm hoping six months. I'd like to get it out in the summer. Or so. Oh, somebody's got a question for me. A question on bullying interference. Let me see if I can uh, get him on the call. And I suggest alternatives for people seeking treatment for addictions. Well, I mean, I can't say anything of particular import other than, of course, you may have somebody who has addictions. I think it's probably worth having them check out the bomb and the brain material. 
uh, fdrurl.com forward slash B-I-B. Uh, simply because um, a lot of addictions seem to come out of trauma suffered as child, as children, and therefore to deal with that trauma, I think to be would be to undercut the driving for the addiction. So I think that's uh, useful. All right. So this this one person's asking uh, if he sees two kids bullying each other in public. Although I think it's usually just one bullying the other. I don't even think it goes back and forth too much. Uh, what authority do I have to break it up? And I assume that these are like neighborhood kids or strangers? Well, I mean, I think you have authority to to talk to the kids, and I think that probably is a useful thing to do. Um, I mean, I don't. you certainly don't have authority to wade in and start prying them apart and throwing them around and stuff like that. I certainly wouldn't uh, handle it that way, but you can uh, you can go in and, and talk to them. And uh, I think that could be a, a useful and productive thing to do. Uh, somebody's asked, have I got a visual identity for the documentary like graphic designer proofer? Um, well, the documentary style is an interesting question. We're really trying to see how much philosophy we can get across in pure high-def 3D porn. Uh, so uh, obviously my inbox is full of uh, photos of people auditioning for various parts of the film. And so, uh, yeah, if that's if that's your graphics approach, then um, that's important. I do want the audience backing up and going, whoa. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, we, uh, we, we do have some graphics designers, but we'll need a lot of them because, you know, I want it to be, uh, uh, you know, visually catchy as much as possible. We do want to keep a similar style, right? Um, and we're still going to work out on what that is. Obviously, we don't want anything hugely expensive, but we don't want just stick figures. So that's the, uh, that's the idea. Yeah, the third part is called the butter stick and the llama. It's really, really exciting. I'm already 3D modeling a giant bald head for Sniff. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, I have done a how to find a therapist. Um, that's uh, somebody can put the number in and sort of ask this every week or two. Uh, so how would you handle a personal encounter with state minions such as police and military knocking on your door for no apparent reason? I doubt a spiel about libertarianism and anti-state ideas would get you very far. Is there libertarian-based legal advice available? Yes, I can actually tell you that there is. And let me get it for you. I say this because when I was at Libertopia, well, we saw that. Uh, we saw that. So let me just get you some. Uh, Libertopia.org is, I think, where last year's stuff, or maybe it's coming out for this year's stuff, is going on. Um, so let's see here. Exhibitors. Yeah, so if you go to libertopia.org and click on exhibitors, there's Liberty Legal, Conway Law Group at conwaylawgroup.com. This guy uh, talked, actually, and he was a um, – uh, I thought he was a great guy. Um, and uh, let me just get his – attorneyforfreedom.com is the website, and you should check him out. He gave a great speech. His name is Mark J. Victor, and uh, he's um, – you know he knows he knows his stuff, and you can see his speech at Libertopia. So uh, that those would be um, those would be my suggestions. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, sorry, FDR 1927, How to find a great therapist is my personal take on on that. And oh yeah, I've got a uh, I've got a speaking gig coming up. Do 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 do. All right. 
Boom, ba dum, boom, boom, ba dum. Am I on? Yeah. Yes, you are. Oh, oh, all right. Sorry, yeah, just just yeah. before you start, can you hold on for just a sec? So, uh, sure. uh, July 30th, 20... Wait. Ca- yeah, Capitalism and Morality. Uh, I'm going to be speaking 30th of July in Vancouver. And uh, so far, what I've got, uh, some people who are sort of lined up. Uh, Doug Casey, Rick Rule, Butler Schaefer, and so on. Uh, and I, I don't know if these are confirmed or not, but these are the people who are in there. And I am going to be speaking there. Uh, I don't think there's a website for it quite yet, but um, I hope that you can make it if you're out there on the West Coast. Uh, I'm going to be emceeing, and and I'm going to be doing a seriously uh, lengthy set of speeches. Um, so I hope that you'll be able to do it. This is going to be audience participation UPB, right? So I'm going to get audience members up, and we're going to just act the crap out of UPB scenarios so that people can really get the power uh, of the theory and the utility of the theory. So I hope that you will um, oh, you will do that. Uh, we will get involved in that. Also working at bringing a Freedom Festival north to um, to Toronto, perhaps in August. So that will be around as well. And I got one other one coming up, which I will just get. Yeah, so uh, you might want to check out Liberty Fest West. Let me just get you that, libertyfestwest.com. Sorry to go all infomercial on your heinies, but uh, so February 11th, 5.30 p.m. to midnight, I'm going to be emceeing that as well and speaking as well, so get ready to party like it's 1776. And um, I hope that you'll be able to make it down and check that out. Um, I think that there are tickets available right now. You might want to buy them ahead of time. And uh, it's like 10 bucks, 10 bucks, come on, you can't beat that. Um, you can email your contact info to Caleb Leverett at crankmycat at gmail.com. So there's VIP tickets. Again, I think there's going to be a uh, sort of breakfast the next day as well, something like that. So I hope you'll come to Liberty Fest West. Libertopia, of course, is going to go back on. And um, after Libertopia, uh, which is, again, going to be in California, uh, straight after Libertopia is going to be the second annual Liberty Cruise, which is guess, going to be October. And I hope that you will be able to make it to that. I've got to tell you, that Liberty Cruise is absolutely something else and a half. I mean, that was one of the best times I've ever had um, outside of my own house. Um, so I think that would be, uh, if you can make that, um, I hugely, hugely recognize it. Uh, Libertopia, let's see here. So I think it's going to be the 14th, 11th to the 14th of October. And then right after that, we are going to be uh, going on the Liberty Cruise. And I hope, yeah, Liberty, Libertopia 2012 is October 11th to 14th, 2012, of course. So Monday the 15th, we're probably going to be leaving to go to Catalina Island on a cruise. Please, please, please come. It is it is so much fun. I mean, but there's a, a, a whack load of kids around. It's great dancing, karaoke. You get to hear me yowl like a, a cat in um, truly terrifying heat. A variety of <laughs> songs. What did I do? I did, um, I did Hey Jude. And I did um, Daydream Believer, uh, which was, uh, you know, fun for me. And at least half the audience uh, stayed, um, those, of course, who were Velcroed down. And uh, so I hope that you will be able to uh, to come to that Liberty Cruise. It's hugely, hugely recommended. It is truly a once-in-a-lifetime, not exactly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but something that you should really 
uh, work at, at coming to. Uh, it is. It really was a blast, and we just we had so much fun. Uh, and uh, maybe I can post a couple of pictures as well, but uh, you should check that out. All right, look at that. We are running out of time. Let's see here. Steph, I have a fear of taxes. Oh, we do have a caller on the line. I'm sorry. We do have a caller on the line. All right. Oh, am I I on? Yes, you are. All right. um, Thank you for doing your show. I've been listening to you for, well, I don't know, time passes. Um, Your Against Me video eventually converted me from a minarchist to a full-blown anarchist because I started using that argument with people. And then eventually, you know, I gotta think. I gotta think that even more powerful than the against me arguments is to say that if you become an anarchist, you will be fully blown. I think that would pretty much uh, be the tipping point for the movement <laughs> as a whole. But uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things about the against me argument is that, I mean, I started using it in my discussions, even though I was still, you know, a minarchist, you know, Ron Paul libertarian kind of. Thing. Um, but the more kind of you accept the idea that nonviolence is, it, well, or I, I should say violence is inherently illegitimate, it is destructive, it is, you know, if you see someone else has a piece of candy and then you go beat them over the head to get that piece of candy, well, you're, you're not committing an ethical act. And the more, the more kind of ideas like that really hit people in the core, and I, I look at kind of my own sort of conversion, if you would call it, um, the more certain powerful ideas hit people at the very core, it's not so much a matter of winning the, the arguments about, oh, this one regulation is bad, or this tax is bad, or a whole bunch of these other I- ideologies and beliefs that are really kind of on the peripheral or what I would call the distracting political action side of politics. Uh, you don't have to win all of those battles. In fact, I would say most of those battles are a waste of time. But more importantly, what I have discovered, and since I have um, converted uh, a few people myself, is that the only real reason to address many of these kind of peripheral ideas and peripheral battles is just because people are scared. But at the very core, what, what really converts people is in what, you know, it's the equivalent of winning 100 of these battles if you convert someone at the very core, um, is the, the ideas that, you know, the, the disgusting nature of violence and the prevalence of violence in politics. And I, as far as, like, being effective in converting people to libertarian or libertarian type ideas, I think it's very important to focus on those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, certainly I would, um, I would agree with you there. It is, um, you know, I think one of the reasons that people are drawn to these arguments from effect is that you can frankly dick around for a long time with that shit. You can mm-hmm. have these back and forth arguments, you can go and get more data, you can provide counter evidence, you can you, you can screw around a lot of time for a long time with that mm. kind of stuff. And it's really tempting. It's it's dabbling around. Uh, and it avoids the confrontation, right? The the, the, the the baseline confrontation of the against me argument is something that people want to avoid. I can understand that. I mean I really can. I sympathize with that. 
uh, in which case maybe you don't have the stomach for it and you got to get off the field. Uh, so I, I, I really get why it's a lot more, it's a lot less stressful, a lot less make or break in people's relationships to sort of dick around with statistics and the arguments from effect. Um, but it doesn't really, really change anything. Um, because I think people really are run by morality fundamentally. And that's the most important thing that people have going on in their hearts and in their minds. So I agree with you. And if you really do get someone, sorry, if you really do get someone to understand and accept the moral argument, then, you know, that's something that can spread a lot more quickly than, than the argument from effects. Yeah. One of the things I have noticed is uh, the more experienced a sort of voluntarist anarchist person is like yourself or Lee Rockwell. Um, I believe I remember there's a quote by Lou where he said, there really is only one argument for anarchism. And he said, it is inherently illegitimate to use violence against an innocent person. Right. He's like, you don't need any other arguments. That's the only, that's the only one you need. So, I think anyone who, you know, this might be more directed at, you know, people listening into the show right now, but, you know, if you actually want to be effective in converting people, well, these kinds of things are worth taking into consideration. Are you spending three hours debating a communist over um, whether a one or two percent tax increase is going to help or hurt people? Or are you actually, you know, hitting these ideas at the core? And I mean, you can't convert, you know, everyone or you can't convert everyone in an instant. But if you can indeed address the very core of the issue and avoid these distractions, which I almost exclusively avoid the distractions when I'm engaged in these kinds of discussions. But if you can do that, you'll be a lot more efficient, a lot more effective. And if we do want to see liberty in our lifetime... Um, or even in a children's lifetime, we'll have to treat this more as if it is kind of like a business. You want to be efficient, you want to be effective, you don't want to be like, you know, throwing resources out the door and then you go bankrupt because <laughs> you spend them all on the wrong thing like political action. But, um, and then just one other related thing, which you'll probably be happy to hear, but I've actually been con- been uh, encouraging people to diversify their donations, not like just merely send every dollar to Ron Paul, but to send it to other people like uh, yourself, Wolf Sucks Podcast, Adam versus the Man. There are other people out there who are far more talented than myself, who my dollars would be a lot more effective supporting somebody like yourself. You know, you're a great speaker. You have a background in... Um, theater, um, my dollars are more effective in your hands spreading the ideas of liberty than spending three hours of my time, um, you know, making a lesser effect. So that is something I want people to consider if they want to be effective in spreading liberty. Right. Well, I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that people should not put all their eggs necessarily in one basket unless they feel really feel that there's no other basket, right? So, I mean, if... If people, I mean, I'm convinced that political action is not uh, is not the way to go. Um, but if people are, even if people are convinced, you know, throw a few bones to the other people working in the liberty movement because um, yeah, Ron Paul seems to be doing uh, less well now. Uh, and um, you know, the unfortunate thing, of course, is in politics is, is momentum is everything. 
Momentum is everything because if people think you're going to win, they'll give you money. And if they don't think you're going to win, you're toast because the reason that people want you to win is so that you're, most people, right, most donators, particularly the corporate ones, the reason they give you money is because they want political favors afterwards, right? Yeah. So why is, um, why is Newt Gingrich talking about a moon base? Because the war on terror is becoming politically unsustainable. People aren't buying a war with Iran. They're not buying a war. They're not buying the, the invasion of, of Libya or the, the funding of, of Libyan troops and so on. They're just not buying that. So what else have you got to give to the military-industrial complex? I know, a moon base, just in case Al-Qaeda <laughs> takes up residence on the moon. Right? Yeah, so, I mean, this that, is, people don't understand this stuff. They want, why the hell is he talking about a moon base? Well, he's talking about a moon base so that he'll get uh, the, the major engineering companies that are currently – Sucking up the black tit of, uh, sorry, that's an insult to black tits. Uh, you know the, the military industrial complex, and uh, they, he says, "Look, there's going to be hundreds of billions of dollars coming your way for a moon base." And yeah, that's not, not to mention, um, you know, not not to get too much into the news, but Obama's pet projects of with the energy companies are just like one catastrophic failure after another. So. That one's becoming increasingly less popular, especially with things like uh, I, th- I think there is some looking into overturning ethanol subsidies, which is well, <laughs> um, that that would be of course a good thing because it you know reduces the supply of food and you know makes food more expensive in other countries where people don't have quite as much. Um, but but yeah, any, anyway, I just wanted to make those few quick points, and I'll let you uh, get back to other callers or um, or whatever you were going to do with the rest of the show. All right. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, and thank you. <laughs> I think, yeah, I just, I think that, that Moonbase stuff, every now and then there's just draw-dropping funny stuff that goes on in politics. And, uh, you know, without wanting to sound overly etymologically punny, uh, the Moonbase is truly loony. Anyway, so unless we have any other yearning burnings, uh, I guess we can close down the show for the week. Thank you, everybody, 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 as always, so much for allowing me to do that voodoo that I hopefully do so well. And uh, thank you so much for the callers coming in. Oh, fear of tax is so deep it's prevented me from organizing my affairs to make more than the legal taxable threshold. I wonder that if I make a mistake declaring my various ins and outs, I will be punished. Can you please make the tax man go away? I cannot make the tax man go away. But it's probably worth investing in, a, in an account. Um, I mean, no, there's no way to understand the tax laws. There's no way to understand. Nobody understands all the tax laws. There's just way too many of them. So, I mean, if you look at, try and understand how Mitt Romney ended up with a 15% tax rate after making millions and millions and millions of dollars. And it will literally make your head, it will, ex, it will seem to explode because your yawn will get so big that you will actually eat your own head like Pac-Man being swallowed by ghosts. So, um yeah, you might want to just invest in an account. It's one of these things that you got to pay, but it's um, it's easier. Somebody asked me, do I think there's no value in fantasy-based fiction? Or that the harm it may do outweighs its value as entertainment? No, I think there's value in fantasy-based fiction. Um, I, I think it's fine to view it as as fantasy and to get moral arguments out of it, I think is fine. But I think far too many people go into it too deeply at the expense of courage and energy within their own lives. Now, it's like a glass of wine with dinner is fine, but alcoholism is bad. So, yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's bad. 
for there to be fantasy-based entertainment. Um, I liked watching Lord of the Rings. But I do think that it is, you know, if you sort of look at that um, Big Bang Theory kind of personality, it's stripping the most intelligent people from the moral arguments in uh, in mankind. There was there was a Big Bang Theory. I'm not so keen on the show anymore. I liked the first season or two, but it just it got too repetitive and too depressing. But um, there was one where the lead guy, I can't remember his name. Uh, the lead guy is so saying to his uh, his the, the woman Penny, the woman across the hall. They say, "Oh, we won!" You know, they're cheering because their sports team won. And he's like, well, "I don't understand that. I mean, <laughs> you know, if we if if um, you know, we go to a Star Trek movie and the Federation wins, we don't think that we've won." Um, anyway, it's just sort of a comment on on sports and how ridiculous it is. And of course, she just gave him a look like, "What would that have to do with anything? What would facts have to do with anything? What would objectivity have to do with anything?" And of course, he backed down right away because you know that's only the thing. So. Johnny Galecki's character. Yeah, I can't, no, not Shelton. Not the not the uh, stick insect space alien, the other one. Leonard. Leonard, that's the one. Uh, let's see. Thank you. A formal question on ditching status friends. What if they have a shred of humanity and their brain just short circuits and they shut down when you show them the gun in the room? Be patient. Be patient. You know, be patient with the recognition that patience is a virtue, but patience is not the same as procrastination, right? So be patient. Be aware of your feelings. I think your gut will tell you when, like if they have a chance to, to flourish or if they're going to fall into the dead weight of propaganda forever. I think you just trust your, your gut instinct that way. Yeah, and of course, you know, if you don't have to bring up sadism with any of your friends, but, you know, once you do, then you're in the ring. And, uh, you know, that's that's the result of that kind of choice. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, so, so much. Have a, um, a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And uh, I guess a couple of reminders. Um, let's see here. Oh, yeah, so a couple of new videos. Uh, I had an interview with um, uh, a very interesting libertarian academic, actually an anarchist academic, uh, interestingly enough, from uh, it's Dr. David R. Barker. It's called Libertarian Enslavement because I do love me my oxymoronic titles. And uh, you might want to check out David R. Barker. You can find him also. Uh, let me just get his uh, his website for you. It's on YouTube, and I'm going to throw it into the stream in the next day or two. Uh, you can find his website at barkerecon.com. So I just put that up, and thanks again to Phil for giving me a really nice template and making it look 5% more professional despite my uh, idiot stuff, uh, idiot questions. And uh, I have uploaded uh, – some people think it may be the longest video on YouTube. It is the complete free book, It's the Jetsons World which is available uh, at uh, freedomainradio.com forward slash, sorry, at youtube.com forward slash freedomainradio. Uh, it is the entire audiobook available as a video, acted out with hand puppets. I hope that you will uh, check that out and have yourself a wonderful, wonderful week, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.